It is November 24th, 1971, and a man named Dan is about to jump out of a Boeing 727 at 10,000 feet with $200,000 strapped to his body. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Today, we'll be talking about the only unsolved skyjacking in U.S. history. Today's podcast on D.B. Cooper is brought to you by Portland Luggage, historian and adorable leather clutch, Doug Kink Crispin. If I'm jumping out of a plane at 10,000 feet with $200,000 in 20s, I want to make sure my impedimenta is top-notch. Portland Luggage has everything you could possibly want for your next voyage. Since 1916, this local business has been outfitting travelers, adventurers, and business folk for all their luggage needs. And yes, they even sell black attache cases. So the next time you need some baggage to ensure the job is done right, drop on in on Portland Luggage at 440 Southwest 4th in Portland or at 11645 Southwest Beaverton Hillsdale. Your journey begins at Portland Luggage. We'd like to welcome aboard our Portland passengers. This is Northwest Airlines Flight 305 to Seattle. Our flight time today will be about 25 minutes and we'll be serving cocktails and beverages once we are airborne and the captain has turned off the fasten seatbelt sign. All carry-on baggage must be stowed under the seat or in the overhead compartments. Please check your seatbelts in preparation for takeoff. It was the night before Thanksgiving, 1971. On this stormy, cold evening, Northwest Airlines Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle billeted 36 passengers and six crew members. Little did they know that a man named Dan Cooper was about to change aviation history forever. Dan Cooper, you ask? Who is this Dan Cooper? I thought this was a kick-ass podcast about D.B. Cooper. Well, dear ass kicker, let's listen to the reason for the mix-up from our first guest, attorney and Cooper sleuth, Galen Cook. Because the name D.B. Cooper wasn't generally known to the public until two days after the crime. Perpetrator signed his name as Dan Cooper on the ticket, not D.B. That was put out there basically by the Associated Press and United Press International, and he became known as D.B. Cooper only through an air. The gentleman in sunglasses at the back of the plane in seat 18C was directed to place his attache case under the seat. Instead, he handed the stewardess an envelope. She placed it in her bag to read later. The man in the dark business suit told her that she had best read the note now. The message, in all capital block letters, read, I have a bomb in my briefcase. 
I will use it if necessary. I want you to sit beside me. You are being hijacked. Presumably to show he meant business, the man, Cooper, displayed the contents of his briefcase to the stewardess. She described what appeared to be two rows of four sticks of dynamite stacked in the left corner of the attache case. The eight sticks each appeared to be six inches long and one inch in diameter. There was a bunch of wires coming out of the sticks and a large flashlight battery. Cooper made his demands clearly to the stewardess who relayed the message back to the captain. Jeffrey Gray, author of the book Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper, explains. Well, you know, one of the things that Cooper on the plane wanted, I mean, in his ransom, he was very specific, and he wanted $200,000 in American currency, but he also wanted four parachutes, not four individual parachutes, but two front chutes and two back chutes. The way parachutes worked back then is you had your, your main chute, which is we wore like a backpack, and then you had your reserve in case that one didn't work, and you wore it on the front. And they connected with D-rings, steel D-rings. So he wanted two back and two front, so literally just two sets of parachutes. This is Northwest 305. Name of man is unknown. About six foot one inch. Black hair, about 50. Weight, 170 pounds. Boarded in Portland. The 727 continued on that rainy night to Seattle, as authorities there quickly accumulated the hijackers' entreaties. On the plane itself, there seemed to be an absence of drama, as no announcements were made to the passengers. Appearing quite calm, Cooper kept in his seat and as commanded with stewardess Tina Mucklow by his side. Cooper chain-smoked Raleigh cigarettes, engaging Tina in courteous conversation, he was reported to be very polite. To the point, but polite nonetheless. Earlier in the flight, he had ordered a cocktail and paid for his drink with a $20 bill. Bourbon and Seven, a masculine drink. Rugged, but with a sweet, refined finish. Simple, but holding hints of complexity. A no-nonsense cocktail for a man that was all business. Cooper indeed was all business, but he could still be evasive at times. When asked by stewardess Tina Mucklow if he had a grudge against Northwest Airlines, Cooper replied, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. If his motivation was a mystery, so was the man in the dark glasses. Historian Doug Kank Crispin. The hijacker revealed little about himself in this well-mannered chit-chat. He referred to Minneapolis, calling the area nice country, perhaps revealing a sliver of background, but perhaps not. Cooper seemed to be quite familiar with the Pacific Northwest. At one point during the flight to Seattle, he told the stewardess, 
That looks like Tacoma down there. He also revealed that he had planned the caper to quite some detail, when he let it be known that he had some Benzedrine tablets, Bennies, or what we might call speed, and offered it to the flight crew to help stay awake. It was an arrogant action, hijacking a commercial jet airliner, but $200,000 was hardly an arrogant sum of money. Cooper was indeed a calculated and collected smooth criminal. Of course, the logistics of obtaining chutes, cash, and fuel took some time. So the 727 circled Seattle. The captain explaining to those on board that there were some minor mechanical issues with the aircraft. As reassuring an announcement back then as it is today. Eventually, the plane landed and taxied to a stop. The plane sat, the passengers became restless with all the delay in the air and on the ground, and the authorities scrambled. After some holdup in obtaining the loot and the four parachutes, Cooper was reported to have said, Get that stuff out here right now. The previously polite hijacker was getting a little edgy. The authorities had prepared the money and had covered all their bases. All of the ill-begotten bills were photographed with a high-speed Recordac machine to create a microfilm record that would later be used to prepare a list of serial numbers. Every serial number from every 20 Dan Cooper received was recorded and preserved for history. The money was brought to the scene having been carefully counted, bundled, and bagged. Cooper sent stewardess Tina Mucklow off the plane to collect the prize. A canvas bag contained the currency, and $10,020 bills is a bulky bundle. In fact, the bag of bills weighed 21 pounds. It was substantial enough that when Tina came back on the plane, she dropped it on the floor and drug it behind her like so much dirty laundry. Cooper stared into the bag and reportedly said, looks okay, and stuck his hands in the bag and fingered the notes. There's a lot of cash in that bag. Can I have some? <laughs> Cooper reached his hand in and pulled out a bundle of bills and handed it to Tina. She quickly responded, Sorry, sir. No tips allowed. Northwest Orient policy. Earlier, with a decidedly smaller sum, the change from the bourbon and seven he had purchased, Cooper had tried to tip the other stewardesses as well. Like Tina, they also refused citing Northwest policy. Once he had the plunder, the hijacker ordered the passengers to be released right there in Seattle. Most didn't even realize they had been participants in a hijacking, a fact that has led some to characterize the crime as victimless. We presented this opinion to Ein Sandalo Dietrich at the Seattle field office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And I've heard this crime characterized as victimless. How would you respond to such a statement? The hijacker took $200,000 that he did not earn. So the airline that had to pay that ransom money was victim, victimized financially. 
And we should also consider, especially in light of just remembering an anniversary of a tragic event that happened 10 years ago on an airplane, that the flight crew, uh, the flight, flight crew were also victims because they were subjected to a traumatic circumstance. You have to remember, Doug, that the hijacker passed them a note saying that he had a bomb. He showed them something that looked like a bomb. I think any of your listeners in that situation would feel very much a victim of a criminal's plot. The big old jet airliner was refueled, and the four parachutes were delivered to the plane. Appearing a little jittery, Cooper yelled, Let's get this show on the road! Now, the next part of Cooper's plan began to unfurl. The Boeing 727 was designed with an aft stair, a passenger staircase built into the belly of the airliner at the rear of the plane, which would allow passengers to board or deplane without a mobile staircase or jetway. This specific feature of the aircraft is a very important detail to our tale. Cooper provided the crew with very specific, very technical instructions. He told the flight crew to fly to Mexico City with the landing gear down, the airplane's flaps at 15 degrees, and to not fly above 10,000 feet. The crew informed Cooper that the distance to Mexico City was 2,200 miles, but in the configuration he requested, the plane would burn fuel so fast that the range would likely be only about 1,000 miles, or roughly Reno, Nevada. Furthermore, Cooper wanted the aft stair to be open for the flight, but the crew told him the plane would not be able to take off with the stairway lowered. When informed of the situation, Cooper said, Okay, then I'll keep one of the girls back here after we take off. Soon after the plane departed SeaTac, Cooper ordered Tina to the front of the plane. He said, Go in there and stay in there. On your way, pull that curtain between the first class section and the economy section and don't come back. The hijacker was witness deploying one of the chutes in the airplane, filling the cabin with the pink silk from the parachute. With a pocket knife, Cooper cut the shroud lines from this chute, using the material in an attempt to secure the canvas bag of cash and likely strapping it to his body. Cooper had trouble opening the aft stair, but from the lighted panel in the cockpit, it appears that at 7.42 p.m., only five minutes after departing from Seattle, Cooper managed to deploy the stairway. A little after eight, an attempt was made to ascertain if Cooper was still in the plane. The flight crew called back on the public address system. Is everything okay back there? Anything we can do for you? There was silence, but a panel light blinked and indicated that the aft stairs were fully extended. At 8.05 p.m., Cooper came on the interphone and simply responded, Now! This was the last confirmed message from the most infamous hijacker in aviation history. Cooper turned to the nearest possible exit and deplaned like a fucking boss.
raging storm must have literally hit Cooper in the face, freezing rain and sleet like needles gouging his exposed skin. The airline speed caused a 200 mile an hour wind, with the temperature at a frigid minus seven degrees as he walked down those stairs, gripping the metal handrails. Clad in his suit and thin overcoat, loafers on his feet, he descended the stairs until the rushing tempest and two layers of storm clouds were the only thing between himself and ultimate freedom. Staring down at the blackest possible bottomless abyss rushing by, what did he feel? Was he scared or exhilarated? Confident? Terrified? We posed this question to our panel of D.B. Cooper experts. First, attorney and Cooper sleuth, Galen Cook. Got only one thing on his mind. Has to exit that aircraft. Has to jump off those half stairs in order to complete his getaway. He's just completed a crime. That is, a crime of air piracy and a crime of extortion, which are both federally uh, instituted crimes that would put him in federal penitentiary for about 45 years if they catch him. So he knows while he's on that airplane that he has to get away. Now, what's going through his mind? Well, you probably have to consider the motive that I must get away as, as uh, not only a uh, preeminent thought, but his very survival depends on got a parachute on his back, got, like you said, the wind behind him. He's going to jump out of a commercial jetliner going almost 200 miles an hour over somewhere over southern Washington or northern Oregon. But he's got to jump out because if he stays on the aircraft, he's going to get caught eventually. He's got to make the plunge now. Author Jeffrey Gray took a more esoteric look and explained the psychology behind hijacking. They were not really the heroes that D.B. Cooper was projected to be. They were people who were depressed. They were loners. They were really down in their lives and, and suicidal. And the hijacking itself, while we interpret it as, as a romantic courage or whatever, as a crime, the true psychological motives behind commandeering an airplane with an alleged bomb and threatening to blow it up are deeper and serious ones. And it's more the suicidal urge of anything else. And so I think that teetering on the ass stairs, one to 200 miles an hour, the hijacker is thinking, God, you know, in this life of horror that I've lived, in this life of failure upon failure, finally I'm able to achieve one fine thing. And then, adios. Meanwhile, the Bureau is having none of Gray's psychobabble. Ein Dietrich of the FBI. Well, Doug, the FBI is dedicated to protecting the public, not speculating on crimes. So the hijacker at that moment was committing a crime, and that's the only aspect of his behavior that is significant to our investigation. With all due respect to Ms. Dietrich and her colleagues at the FBI, as a historian, I'm not allowed such a luxury. My job is to interpret the history, carefully evaluating all the information available, and it's my responsibility, indeed my obligation, to present this analysis to you the public. And when I close my eyes, in my mind, I picture Dan Cooper high on bourbon and bennies, drunk on money lust from the $200,000 strapped to his body, literally on top of the world, surveying the obscurity below, the squall and storm slapping his face. 
he must have felt like a fucking superhero. He took the final step, and Cooper jumped. November 24, 1971, at 8.12 p.m., the flight crew radioed in. We're getting pressure oscillations in the cabin. He must be doing something with the stairs. At this point, Flight 305 was just a few miles from the Oregon border, very close to Ariel, Washington, on the southern range of Mount St. Helens. Without a further trace, Dan Cooper who only hours after he materialized at the Portland airport, forever disappeared into the dark skies of history. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast on D.B. Cooper was brought to you by Portland Luggage. It was written by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. This podcast featured the vocal talents of Ali Schultz. We'd also like to extend a kick-ass thank you to Ein Zindalo Dietrich of the FBI, attorney Galen Cook, and Skyjack author Jeffrey Gray for their gracious interviews. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. Or follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Part two of the D.B. Cooper series will air November 15th. Be sure to check back soon. And be sure to join us for ORHistory.com's D.B. Cooper Night at Mississippi Studios, located at 3939 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland, Oregon, on November 20th, 2011, at 7.30 p.m. We'll have a rock and history-filled night with the bands Gerard Miles and Oh Darling accompanying historians Katie Barber, Matt Love, Twitter legend at Ancient Portland, and our own resident historian, 
Doug Kank Christmas. Truly kick-ass raffle prizes, live music, drinks, a whole bunch of history, and who knows? Maybe Mr. Cooper himself will drop on in. DB Cooper Night is co-sponsored by Dave Knows PDX, Lost Oregon, and Jennifer Wells Design Glass Studio. We hope you'll join us for this kick-ass event. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. We'd also like to extend a kiss-ass, kiss-ass. <laughs>